Hello, and welcome to Curbside Consults, a new series within the NEJM Resident 360 podcast feed. My name is Mike Mee. I am an internist and an editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. The goal of this podcast series is to provide an audio companion to the rotation prep section of the NEJM Resident 360 website, where you can currently find 19 different guides with essential information for internal medicine residents. If you're not familiar with the guides or the website, now's the time to click pause and go visit resident360.nejm.org. Okay, most of you probably didn't pause to visit the website, but I hope that's because you are already well acquainted with it. On the podcast, we'll be taking deep dives into topics with expert clinician educators to go beyond the basics in rotation prep. This will be an opportunity to explore the details of pathophysiology and to critique the evidence behind clinical practice. Our first episode will tackle acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. Joining us is Dr. Patricia Critic, who is a professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and an associate medical director of critical care at the University of Washington Medical Center. She is also an associate editor for NEJM Journal Watch and section editor for NEJM Knowledge Plus. We are very fortunate to have this phenomenal clinician educator kick off our series. You've probably already heard the sound bites about low tidal volume, ventilation, the importance of PEEP, neuromuscular blockade, and prone positioning. During our conversation, we'll discuss in detail how these therapies may work and highlight the key clinical trials that tested them. I hope you'll find it as enlightening as I did. Dr. Quiddick, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Today we're going to be covering a topic of ARDS, a topic that comes up very often in the medical ICUs. It's the 50-year anniversary of ARDS. Uh, the New England Journal just published an editorial looking back at the new uh, the new knowledge that we have about its pathophysiology and management and everything that's happened since the landmark trial that described it in 1967 by Dr. Ashbaugh and all. So I just want to start by asking you, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how has our understanding of this entity, ARDS, changed over the past 50 years? Well, I'm happy to talk about that. I'm going to give a quick disclaimer to say that I haven't been alive for all the 50 years that there's been a disease, an entity called ARDS. So I'm not perfect person for all of the history. But I would say in the last many years, a couple of decades, we've made a lot of advances in thinking about ARDS. And I think they fall into some big categories. The first and foremost probably is our understanding of how to manage the ventilator for patients with ARDS. And I think we've evolved from a time when we were doing a fair amount of injury to people's lungs, causing a fair amount of barotrauma and probably volume trauma, to a much more or a much less injurious model of ventilation. And we can talk about that more. I think we're still trying to figure out how to do things like adjust PEEP to the best level and additional strategies to minimize ventilator-induced lung injury. But I think mechanical ventilation has changed dramatically in that time. And just our, in general, mechanical ventilation has really evolved. But mechanical ventilation to, to support the patient with ARDS has evolved. And then I think a lot of the thoughts about what are the other things we can do to prevent ventilator-induced lung injury that aren't just the ventilator, ranging from positioning of the patient, prone positioning, and how we do that, and when we do it, and for how long we do that, as well as um, supplemental strategies like neuromuscular blockade. We've tried a lot of things along the way to try to, to treat ARDS, and I would say the majority of them 
have not been successes. There have been a lot of trials looking at medications and other strategies to try to minimize that ventilator-induced lung injury, and most haven't panned out. But I think we have more and more evidence-based interventions to support patients with ARDS. So I think a growing field. I think we're right on the cusp of learning some more things about treatment of patients with ARDS. I think there's been some challenging times when a lot of the things we tried didn't necessarily give us the benefits we hoped for, but I'm really optimistic that we're going to see this field evolve over the next many years as well. Excellent. I think that's a great overview for uh, what we're going to talk about in more detail, and let's just dive right in. I'm just going to make up a pretty common scenario that we get, which is in the medical ICU when we're on call, we get a patient coming up from the ED. They may have been sick for a few days with a cough. In the ED, they look pretty unwell. The pulse oximeter is reading a uh, O2 saturation of maybe 85%. The patient is tachypneic to the 30s, and a decision is made to intubate the patient. They get a check saturation afterwards, and it shows diffuse opacities. They get broad-spectrum antibiotics, and is now admitted to the ICU. You know, residents are then handed off to care. Sometimes this may be in the middle of the night. Let's say this patient comes into our unit. What are some of the first things that you think of with management, and also? How do we even know that what we're suspecting is happening is happening? How do we know this patient has acute respiratory distress syndrome? Uh, well, I think you are right on target, Mike. The first thing we have to say is, does this patient have ARDS? And ARDS, you said the S, it's a, it's a syndrome. So there's a constellation of things that we look for to put a patient into the bucket of ARDS. And you've alluded to them already. We refined our definition of ARDS in 2012 with the Berlin definition. It was published in JAMA. And those criteria are ones that you just described. One is that it's an acute problem happening in the last seven days with a known cause. And sepsis or infection would be high on the list of things that could cause ARDS. The second thing that we think about is, do they have opacities on their chest x-ray? And as you stated, this patient has bilateral opacities that would fit with the definition of ARDS. There were some new caveats about the chest x-ray in the Berlin definition saying those opacities aren't nodules or atelectasis or effusion, and I think we'd all agree that that's not ARDS, it's not alveolar filling process. The third thing is that it can't all be explained by cardiogenic pulmonary edema, heart failure. We used to say there's no evidence of increased left atrial pressure, but now we just say, well, the whole story can't be heart failure, and there's nothing that you've told me about this patient that makes me think that the problem is that they have cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And then the last thing, and kind of the hallmark of ARDS is that they're hypoxemic, and we quantify that hypoxemic in ARDS by looking at the PaO2 to FiO2, or the PF ratio. And for that, we'd like to have a blood gas so we can actually measure a PaO2. We can extrapolate um, from a saturation, and there's more and more evidence that maybe just using saturations and extrapolating is fine. Um, but we want to know, A, what their PaO2 is, and B, what their FiO2 is on the ventilator. And the third thing that was new in the Berlin definition, it kind of added that the patient either had to be on a CPAP of five or more support than that, meaning they also were getting some type of mechanical ventilatory support. So all evidence suggests this patient has ARDS. There's a few things we'd want to confirm before we will put them in the bucket of ARDS and start thinking about are there interventions that we do for patients with ARDS that are evidence-based. But I think most things are suggesting this, this person's gonna fit that definition. 
so in my experience as a resident, sometimes it feels that when we have these definitions, they can seem a little too dichotomous or too rigorous because you're, it feels like you're checking off boxes. In clinical practice, are you thinking in your head that I need to tick off the Berlin criteria all the time? Or because at, at times it can seem that maybe the definitions are created for research purposes and in situations of clinical care, Oftentimes, it seems clinical gestalt is all that people use to figure out, okay, this patient is behaving like they have ARDS, let's treat them like they have ARDS. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think the answer is yes, I use my clinical gestalt, but I probably would do it in a sequential pattern and say, first of all, do they fit the criteria for ARDS? And I do use the Berlin criteria to assess that, and I do calculate a PF ratio, and I say, do I think that they could be in this, this category? And then if there's something else that makes me say, yeah, it seems like ARDS and yet nothing is acting like ARDS. Their oxygenation is getting better really fast or they don't have low compliance at all and I'm able to keep weaning the FiO2 and I think in a couple hours they're going to not fit the PF ratio, then I might not do all the things that would kind of be in that list of things I would consider with patients with ARDS. So I think you want to start by saying, do they fit the criteria? And I do use the criteria, even though I agree with you that they're really particularly helpful for enrolling patients in clinical trials so we can study the disease. I think they're also helpful for us to think about who we should be considering all of these interventions. And then I might decide that this person is going to be someone I'm not going to do these interventions for, but I'm probably more likely to do that after I've tried some of them and I'm seeing that there's more downsides than upsides to those interventions potentially. I think we'll talk, I suspect we'll talk a little bit about low tidal volume ventilation. And I think sometimes it's particularly hard for patients to, to tolerate that. And I may do some using my clinical sense in those settings as opposed to strictly following guidelines, but that's going to be a patient to patient thing. Up front with this guy, though, I'd be thinking, yes, is this ARDS or not? And I would be thinking about doing some interventions right away. All right. So let's jump right into it because all residents at this point have heard about the idea of low tidal volume. And as you mentioned earlier, it's been established as the cornerstone of treating ARDS. So let's start talking about the ARSNET trial, the 2000 landmark study that was published in the New England Journal. Sure. So as you point out, it was published almost you know 18 years ago. We're knocking on 18 years ago that ARMA was published. And um, it has been, I would say, become the standard of care for patients. And that was a randomized control trial that looked at randomizing patients to either six cc's or six mLs per kilo ideal body weight versus 12 uh, mLs per kilo ideal body weight. And the target was six. They started at eight. They could go as low as four. Um, and there was protocolized adjustments of the FiO2 and PEEP. It's often referred to as the PEEP ladder. And what they found, and the reason the trial was stopped early, was that there was a significant mortality benefit to the patients who received the lower tidal volumes than the patients who received the higher tidal volumes. And that, I think, has really driven many institutions across this country and across the world to adopt a low tidal volume ventilation strategy, sometimes referred to as a lung protective ventilation strategy, to take care of patients with ARDS. That's not to say that it wasn't without controversy and that it's not still something that we debate and discuss. Um, and I, I think there's probably nothing magical about six mLs per kilo ideal body weight, but that, that's the starting point from how, for how we address the ventilator strategy for patients with ARDS. 
Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes it's nice to have a sense of the pathophysiology that's driving where people came up with this idea. And I think for a lot of times for residents, especially when I was in training, you show up first day in your ICU rotation and people tell you that, or sometimes they don't even tell you because the respiratory therapists are so good at following these protocols that it just gets done. It just happens. That Exactly. That sometimes it escapes you why it's important. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what was the, the maybe animal model data or what's the understanding of the mechanism of disease that makes us think, okay, let's give lower volumes than what people normally breathe at because six mLs per kilogram of ideal body weight is a lot less than what a normal person takes in per tidal breath. So, so why is it good to do that? So I think a couple things. One is we knew that when we ventilated patients with RDS that they were at risk for barotrauma or trauma due to high pressures. And we knew that because it was super common in the old days for patients with ARDS on mechanical ventilation to have a pneumothorax or often multiple pneumothoraces. And the days, I have to admit, slightly before I was in the ICU, patients would commonly have multiple chest tubes for their recurrent pneumothoraces from barotrauma. So we knew that that was the case. And then there was a school of thought that wondered about what we what became termed volume trauma or trauma to the alveoli from stretching them too much. And there were suggestions of the fact that that could be the case from animal models. And then Perhaps more importantly, we were able to measure a variety of inflammatory markers that were elucidated in the setting of stretching the lung too much. And the thought was, and I think the ongoing thinking is that if you over-distend alveolar units, you cause injury and you cause progression of that inflammatory cascade that's part of ARDS and you potentially worsen the ARDS by, by propagating that inflammatory injury. So while we had a known barotrauma and it was kind of a known term, the evolution around the ARMA trial was this application of a strategy that was designed to minimize what we are going to term now volume trauma. And so we're going to try not to over-distend the lung. The other thing that comes into discussion here in terms of pathophysiology is that we also think it's injurious to the alveoli for them to close and reopen and close and reopen repeatedly. That, that serial opening of closed lung units also leads to expression of inflammatory markers and probably participates in that ongoing injury. We made up a word for that too. We call that adelect trauma. So the trauma of adelectasis being alveoli closing and then recurrently opening. So the goal of this first ventilator settings with ARMA was really trying to minimize both volume trauma and barotrauma, right? We targeted low tidal volumes, but we also said keep your plateau pressure less than 30. And so that was trying to, to mitigate these two things that we think are part and parcel of ventilator-induced lung injury. And in doing so, hopefully stop that ongoing cascade of injury. I see. So it sounds like it was accumulated evidence from trial and error with taking care of patients and adjusting the ventilator settings that people started noticing too much pressure is not good, too much volume is not good, and that perhaps we should be limiting these, these interventions. And that is what led to the ARMA trial? 
Well, it led to some studies in animals, and then it led to some much smaller trials in the ARMA trial. I think the thing that was pretty cool about the ARMA trial was is the first time this group, this consortium called ARDSNET came together, and we worked across a variety of institutions to enroll patients in a randomized controlled trial. So there were smaller single center studies that were looking at this, and, and like I said, there's animal model data that suggested it. So it was clinical practice plus animal models plus smaller trials, which culminated in a larger randomized controlled trial, which I think is the way that a lot of science kind of evolves. And I think in this setting, it evolved to this finding that, that too big of volumes cause more lung injury. Mm -hmm. So you know, one of the things that we're trying to accomplish with our series here is to give residents a bit more depth of understanding uh, of data and in addition to management. I do want to touch upon a couple of critiques of the ARMA study that people talk about um, uh, from time to time. One was that at the time when the study was done, the control arm had 12 mLs per kilogram of tidal volume and was aiming for a plateau pressure of 50 uh, centimeters of water, which people have said that even in the 2000s was not something that was widely used in practice, uh, in part probably from the evidence that's that was already accumulating. How do you reconcile that point? I think that they're right. <laughs> I think that that 12 mLs per kilo is bigger than probably most patients were being ventilated. A lot of the patients in that arm actually weren't getting 12 mLs per kilo, though, if you look back at the data. So I, I do think that those numbers probably were beyond what was, quote-unquote, standard of care. That probably was happening in ORs, but I think it was not happening as commonly in ICUs. Um, and And I said this before, but I'll say it again, that preceded the time that I was an intensivist. But in talking to lots of people that I know who were taking care of patients then, I think a lot of people felt like that desire to get separation in the arms, which is super important, right? They wanted to really have two different ventilator strategies. That, that higher tidal volume was probably on the edge of being beyond what most patients were ventilated with. Um, and I think that's why I earlier said that 6 mLs per kilo isn't necessarily the perfect number. It is the number that was part of a study design in the same. And so there's probably a spectrum of what's okay for patients. And I think you see that reflected in the most recent ATS, SCCM, European Society of Critical Care guidelines for ventilation of ARDS, where they say 6 to 8 mLs per kilo ideal body weight. And I think that's giving a little bit of credence to the fact that there's nothing magical about six, and potentially some of that difference was driven by a slightly more injurious model that was super controversial at the time. It held up the ARDSnet doing more trials for a while. Um, and I think in the end, the preponderance of evidence from all the other studies that we've done since then suggests that mortality is lower in patients who we, we give lower tidal volumes. I don't think it says that it has to be six cc's per kilo, but larger tidal volumes with too much stretch are probably injurious. So I think it's a reasonable criticism. I don't think it negates the findings of ARMA. Along that lines, uh, I think we're going to actually get get into this a little bit more because uh, it seems like there are, there are more evidence or more data that can guide our care of patients other than just trying to follow this number for the tidal volume that we give them. And one thing that I want to bring up is uh, I think increasingly people are using other tools to 
guide them on how to set the ventilator appropriately. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about you know these ideas of what is a driving pressure, and also remember in my time as a resident, uh, having a few patients with an esophageal balloon in, which was always somewhat mystifying. So sure, let's talk about that. I'm going to separate them. So the first one, though they're kind of related, and both are going to involve PEEP. So the first one is a really interesting paper that was published, gosh, it's a little over a year now, maybe it's two years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine um, by a group collaborative group and led by some investigators down in Brazil, looking back at data to say, what's the best predictor of how patients do? And what they found was, it seems like the best predictor of how patients with ARDS do in terms of clinical outcomes, particularly mortality, is this concept of driving pressure. And the driving pressure, this is where I wish I had a chalkboard and not just the ability to talk to you, but the, the driving pressure is the difference between the plateau pressure and the PEEP. And you could imagine that the way you manage the PEEP as well as the way you manage the tidal volumes are going to play into finding that lowest driving pressure. And let me just go through a little bit of physiology here. You could imagine that if you aren't giving enough PEEP, you will have atelectatic lung units. And because of that, your respiratory system will be stiffer and your compliance will be lower. And in that setting, it'll take a larger pressure, driving pressure, to get a certain volume into the chest. And thus, that patient might be ventilated with higher driving pressures associated with worse outcomes. But if you got to the right level of PEEP, you turned up the PEEP enough that you recruited the lung so that the lung was actually more compliant, had a higher compliance, it would take less pressure to get the same volume into the chest. And in that setting, you would have a lower driving pressure associated with improved mortalities. And the idea is maybe we should be more sophisticated in thinking about how we set that tidal volume and how we set that PEEP so that we're finding that best PEEP and the right tidal volume for the patient that minimizes the pressure between the plateau pressure and the PEEP that's required because we see that as being associated or this study has shown that it's associated with higher mortality. The higher the driving pressure, the higher the mortality. So that doesn't tell us how to set the ventilator. It tells us that there's probably value in figuring out the right PEEP. It tells us that there's probably value in testing out different tidal volumes in a range, not up to 12, but we're talking, you know, four to eight mLs per kilo, and looking at what the driving pressure is as you do those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, one of the concepts that was somewhat confusing earlier on when I was a resident was you know, thinking about the idea that volume and pressures are all just very interrelated concepts in patients who are who have ARDS and who are on a ventilator. And uh, oftentimes we're told, oh, if people are not oxygenating well, then you have to increase the PEEP because you don't, because it helps open up more alveoli and increase um, ventilation. Improves uh, oxygenation, well. yep. Excuse me, it improves oxygenation. But at the same time, inevitably, when you increase PEEP, you have increases in plateau pressure, uh, and then we have to decrease potentially the tidal volume to account for that, but then we're not getting as much ventilation. So So that's what's so interesting. That's what's so interesting. If you turn up the PEEP, sometimes your plateau pressure doesn't necessarily go up that much. It will right away. So if I go from a PEEP of 5 to a PEEP of 10, 
I'm going to expect my plateau pressure, let's say it was 20, to go from 20 to 25, right? I've turned the baseline pressure up, and so everything kind of goes up in parallel. However, if when you turn that peep up from 5 to 10, you start to recruit new lung units that were atelectatic, you're going to improve the compliance of that patient's respiratory system, of their lung. And in doing so, the plateau pressure may start to come down. So instead of the plateau pressure going from 20 to 25, it could be that the plateau pressure originally went to 25, but now you're recruiting lung, recruiting lung, recruiting lung, and now it's 24, 23, 22. Now your driving pressure is less than it was before because you've recruited lung, you've put that patient in a better place in terms of their PEEP. Does that make sense? Interesting. Maybe you can explain a little bit more about this idea of recruiting lung and and yeah. how that fits in with the physiology of ARDS, because that's also something that was very confusing for me at one point. Absolutely. And, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about PEEP in, in doing that. So we know that when patients develop ARDS, they get non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, right? They get leak from their capillaries into the alveolar space, and so we get alveolar filling. But at the same time, we get lung units that become completely atelectatic and close. And what we'd like to do with PEEP is open up those lung units, those alveoli that are completely closed so that we increase our surface area for gas exchange, improving oxygenation like you were talking about before. And so what we're trying to find is that right level of PEEP that opens up new lung units. Now, that's hard to do sometimes because you could imagine that if you have areas of lung that are fully filled with pus, really bad multi-lobar pneumonia, there's not atelectatic lung units there, there are socked in consolidated lung. And if you turn up the PEEP, you're not gonna open up atelectatic lung units. What's gonna happen when you do that? What's gonna happen when you turn up the PEEP in that setting is you're gonna overextend the good lung units you're going to compress capillaries, go into those good lung units. You're going to reroute that blood flow to the bad lung units that are filled with pus, and you're going to worsen shunt physiology and oxygenation. So what we're trying to figure out with patients with ARDS is, are they recruitable? Meaning, are they people, when we turn up the PEEP, sometimes just a little bit, sometimes a lot, do we start to open up atelectatic lung units? And if we do then not only can we improve their oxygenation because we've increased surface area for gas exchange, but we might also improve their compliance, which is, also, which is a big component of ARDS. So when I say somebody recruitable, what I usually mean is when I turn up the PEEP, and I often joke with the house staff that I work with that they can't, they can't be wimpy. They need to turn it up by a fair amount. So turn it up by 8 or 10. Do something bold. And then wait. If immediately the patient's oxygenation gets worse, then that patient isn't recruitable. You just over-distended the good lung, you created more of that shunt physiology, the patient got worse. They're not gonna be recruitable. But if what you see is that the saturation maybe goes 88, 89, 88, 89, 88, 89, 90, 89, 90, and you're seeing a slow trend, well, you might be recruiting lung with that higher PEEP. And in the same way, you're gonna come back and check that plateau pressure and see if it's was 25, now it's 24, now it's 23, because you're slowly opening up lung units. And if that patient is recruitable, then we think about you know other strategies that we might do to do more recruitment, and that includes things like recruitment maneuvers and whatnot. I'd argue recruitment maneuvers are not evidence-based, but sometimes we do things that are designed to try to 
hold the lung open. Open up alveoli and then hold them open. And, and that's that concept of being recruitable. And in recruitment, improving gas exchange, oxygenation, and in recruitment, also improving compliance of the lung, which we think potentially is going to help us do less ventilator-induced lung injury. Excellent. So, you know, correct me if I'm getting this right. Uh, so, you know, ARDS, it's the disease of heter- it's a heterogeneous disease that we often hear about. So some parts of the lungs are yeah. really open, getting great ventilation, but parts of it is collapsed down. And the idea yeah. of PEEP is to make sure we get more yeah. uniform alveoli open so that they're ready for oxygenation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that if you have more uniform alveoli open, when you put a volume in the chest, it's going to take less pressure to do that, bringing us back to that concept of driving pressure. Mm-hmm. So I liked what you said at the beginning, though. Let me just say one last thing related to what you just said, and that is it's heterogeneous. So some patients are going to be ones that respond to that, and some patients are not. And we have to figure that out when we take care of our individual patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about then, sounds like finding the right PEEP and putting the patient on the right part of the pressure volume curve, yeah. which we'll have some excellent examples of that on the website, is the goal to reach. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that we can go about finding the right PEEP to put a patient on? And when do we start worrying that we're getting too much PEEP? Great. I think that's a really good question. I'm going to say we don't know, but there are some things that we try. So one way to do it is the old-fashioned way of trying higher PEEP and seeing what happens. And I think a lot of times that's what we do. We give a trial of higher PEEP. We see how the physiology changes. We check a plateau pressure. We watch the oxygenation, and we kind of wing it by trying different levels. And I would argue that's probably the vast majority of the ways that PEEP is set, but there's other ways to do it as well. Um, I think the one that you alluded to before and the one that will be interesting to see a larger randomized controlled trial that's just finishing and rolling, what their results are, is this concept of using esophageal pressures to try to find the best PEEP for a patient. So a little more physiology. So what we'd like to understand is what's the pressure across the alveolus? And that would be the difference between what the pressure is in the alveolus and what the pressure is not in the atmosphere, but instead in the pleural space. We call that the transpulmonary pressure, the difference between the alveolar pressure and the pleural pressure. So the hard part is it's easy to measure the alveolar pressure. We put in either a pause at the end of a breath being put in, we call it the plateau pressure, or we measure with an expiratory hold and see what the end expiratory pressure is, we can do either of those. And those estimate the alveolar pressure. However, we don't generally have a way of measuring the pleural pressure directly. So what we sometimes do is use a surrogate for pleural pressure, and that's esophageal pressure. The, the idea would be that, that the measurement of the pressure in the esophagus is similar to the pleural pressure. And it's imperfect, and it has some major challenges in certain patient populations, particularly large patients. But we're using esophageal pressure as a surrogate for pleural pressure, and we're trying to estimate how high is the pleural pressure so we can estimate what that transpulmonary pressure is. And the reason we do that is in you and me, when we're spontaneously breathing, our pleural pressure is negative, negative four, negative five, something like that. But patients who are sick with ARDS often have anasarca, they might have a distended abdomen from an ileus, or they might have ascites, or they might have lots of issues that might cause their pleural pressure that usually is negative, and it's going to now going to be moving 
into the positive range because they're in positive pressure ventilation, but might be remarkably higher than we expect it to be. So if you're on a PEEP of 10, so your alveolar pressure is 10 at the end of a breath, but your pleural pressure, because you have their patient has a big distended belly and has anasarca, has a pleural pressure of 12, the transpulmonary pressure, the difference between inside the alveolus and outside the alveolus would be 10 minus 12 or minus two, which would be a pressure that would lead to collapsing of that alveolus. So we're using that esophageal pressure to estimate pleural pressure so we can calculate transpulmonary pressure and turn up the PEEP enough so we don't get the collapse of those alveoli. It helps you feel confident in turning up the, the PEEP to the point where you're holding alveoli open. Let me stop there. I talked a lot. So you can ask me clarifying questions on that one. Yeah. So you know, I, I think, again, this is a concept that it took me a long time to get. And uh, again, we have a nice chart, actually, from the New England Journal that we'll put on the website where they talk about this idea that, you know, measuring just uh, the pressures that we can measure, such as the airway pressure, which is being a proxy of the alveolar pressure, that the example was a trumpet player when they're playing a, a note, they can generate alveolar pressure of 150 centimeters yeah. of water and nothing's bad happening to their lungs, mainly because they're not seeing it as transpulmonary, yeah. sorry, That's yeah, transpulmonary right. pressure um, because they're using their abdominal muscles, they're using their chest wall muscles to expel out the air with great force. Um, and their pleural pressure is going up when they do that, so the transpulmonary mm -hmm. pressure isn't nearly as high. Um, a lot of times uh, we just have to know to recognize the clinical scenarios, like you had mentioned, where you have anasarca and there's something pushing up on your diaphragm and, and maybe the patient is uh, has obesity or for whatever reason has yeah. a stiff chest wall that's not allowing yeah. it to expand, that we kind of have a, a cage around our lungs and it's okay to have more pressure going in because we got to overcome that force first before we can open up alveoli. That I think that's right. And so I would say is the use of esophageal pressures helps us understand the pleural pressure so we can understand the transpulmonary pressure and probably, quote unquote, gives us permission to turn up the PEEP higher than we might normally do and feel confident in doing that because we think that in that setting where remedying some of that atelectasis that's coming from having higher pleural pressures. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Esophageal balloons are one way to do that. The other ways to do it is, you know, in we used to do things like actually graph out a pressure volume curve and look at different pressure volume curves at different levels of PEEP. And again, try to find that place where we're getting over what is called the lower inflection point of the pressure volume curve, meaning we're hold, we're no longer having atelectatic units, but we're more, we're on the, the steeper part of the compliance curve where we think we've recruited the alveoli we can recruit. And we're in that space again, where we can put the volumes in with the least amount of pressure differential for that patient. So again, using the physiology to try to, to, to determine that. And we actually have real-time pressure volume curves that you can look at on the ventilator that we also sometimes look at and use that data. Again, it's easier with pictures to go through this than just words, but mm -hmm. use that those data to um, find that quote-unquote best PEEP or ideal PEEP for the patient. 
So we're using kind of first principles of physiology to try to find it. And I think that's actually an area of great interest right now. And I think you're going to see more literature about how do we find best PEEP. It's something we've cared about for a long time. Um, and I think we still care about it. We'll be interested in seeing what this esophageal balloon study shows us. The, the first trial was just a single center trial. So this is a larger multi-center randomized controlled trial. Um, but we, I think we'll see other ways that people are going to try to say, well, how do we find the best people so potentially we can minimize that driving pressure? Mm -hmm. Just for fun fact, the single center trial was done at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center where I did that's my true. residency training. <laughs> that's so I'm true. a little biased. Um, and probably so that's you're an also, esophageal believer. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> probably also why I, I think about it and, and hear about it a lot more than maybe the average resident in training. That's great. And I think it's helpful to hear about it because um, ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think any residents, uh, well, maybe some select bold residents are going to be putting in their own esophageal balloons, but I don't think anyone will be doing the titration themselves. But I think it's helpful to learn the, or at least understand the idea behind why yeah. we want to get some other information aside from whatever we're seeing on the ventilator and how that can help us figure out how to best ventilate the patient. Because it seems to me at the end of the day, there's not a lot we can do for the patient, you know, the, the, the basics of taking care of ARDS is still making sure that we're not in some ways causing inadmittent or iatrogenic harm to the patient uh, while we at least do our best to oxygenate them and to let us have the chance to treat the underlying process going forward. You're right. I mean, I think it comes back to that first principle of to do no harm. So we're trying to minimize the harm we're doing with the ventilator while hopefully they get better. And you're right, we got to treat the underlying sepsis or trauma or whatever it was that caused the patient to, to develop ARDS. So let's just go back briefly to our original uh, gentleman. You know, this middle-aged gentleman came in. He may have had pneumonia or may have had a really bad case of influenza. Um, he's in the ICU. We've done our best to put him on a good ventilator setting. You know, he's on about 6 mLs per kilogram of ideal body weights. Uh, for his tidal volume. He's around a peep of 15 at the moment. His plateau is just around 30, and we're still not quite getting to the right setting. Let's say we draw arterial blood gas, and it comes back with a pH of 7.25. He's got a PaO2 of only 74 and a PCO2 of 55. So we're not doing a fantastic job at the moment of getting his P to F ratio up. What else can we do early on to help him out? So what was his FiO2? Is he still on an FiO2 of 1? He's still on an FiO2 of 1. Okay. So we would say his PF ratio, his PaO2 was 75. His FiO2 is 100% or we'd call it 1.0. So his PF is 75. So he fits into the category that we would call severe ARDS. That's part of the definition that we use the PF ratio to grade the severity of ARDS and anything less than 100 is going to be um, severe. So less because we're not getting there and more because I think we have reasonably convincing evidence that there's some interventions to, to use in patients with moderate to severe ARDS early in their course. I think we should consider two different things at this point in time. And, and you'd have to look at the whole constellation to decide if you're going to do these right now, but I think two things should be part of our discussion. Um, and they're both indicated for patients early in ARDS who have a P to PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, PF rate ratio less than 150 based on randomized controlled trials, which you can tell us were published in the New England Journal of Medicine of course. in a minute. Of course, where else? 
So um, the first would be to think about using neuromuscular blockades, specifically with cystatricurium, which was what was used in the Accusis trial. Um, and I would consider using neuromuscular blockade in this patient after he was adequately sedated. Um, again, with the goal of trying to minimize ventilator-induced lung injury, and we can talk about that more if you want to. The second thing that I would have a conversation with the team about is, should we consider early proning in this patient? And this is based on the PERSAVA trial, looking at proning of, of patients with moderate to severe ARDS, PF less than 150, early in their course, and notably what they do is prone these patients for a prolonged period of time, so 16 hours, 16 to 17 hours of the day. Um, and I would say that I would consider both of these. I generally use them together, though they don't have to be used together. And um, the reason I would consider both of them, both have been shown to have a mortality benefit in patients in, in the constellation that I described earlier. So based on those two randomized control trials, and I'd argue some physiologic underpinnings, I would consider doing both of those things if there weren't reasons to not do them at this point in time. All right. Excellent. So let's delve into each a little bit, just because I think they seem a bit, again, you know, you show up on first day of residency in your ICU rotation and people are talking about paralyzing patients for a respiratory issue. Doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And then they're telling you that we got to flip the patient over onto their stomach so that they can oxygenate better. Again, sounds crazy. So let's take them in order. Sure. Let's start with the first trial, the, in the 2010 trial, where it was shown that uh, neuromuscular blockers may help patients early on in ARDS. So what was the rationale why, by paralyzing the patient and uh, taking away their respiratory muscles in this uh, equation would help them with their um, hypoxemia? Sure. So first of all, I'm going to say to you what I say to the residents that I work with, even though I know you're beyond residency. And that is, I'm a big fan of calling it neuromuscular blockade or relaxing the patient because I worry that patients and families will hear us the word paralyze the patient and think, oh my God, what are these doctors thinking? Why are they going to paralyze my loved one? So you're right that we're going to paralyze them, but I'm going to use neuromuscular block. Oh, that's, that's a really good point. So my little patient-family-centered care tidbit amidst this. But anyway, why are we going to do that? Well, I think that the physiology, the physiologic principle that we're going to look for here is that if a patient is actively trying to take a breath, they are going to be contracting their diaphragm and potentially having an impact on that pleural pressure again. And in doing so, moving towards a more negative pleural pressure, creating a greater transpulmonary pressure. And again, we think that potentially by creating more transpulmonary pressure, on the one hand, we want enough transpulmonary pressure to hold alveoli open. On the other hand, we don't want it to be super high because we think that's potentially injurious. So if we take the patient out of their effort out of the picture by neuromuscularly blocking them, what we believe is we have more control over that transpulmonary pressure and hopefully are avoiding the ones that are more injurious, the high ones, by not having the patient initiating breaths on their own. The other thing that we see in patients who are, are sick like this is that just the smallest amount of interaction with the ventilator can result in worsening oxygenation. So certainly 
Neuromuscular blockade for many, many years has been shown to help with refractory hypoxemia by having the patient not interact with the ventilator. So we know that it improves the oxygenation. The thing that was interesting about Perseva is that it actually showed a mortality benefit. We hadn't seen that before. And so I think, I'm sorry, not Perseva, from Acusis, is that we actually saw a mortality benefit. I think that's more due to the decrease in ventilator-induced lung injury from the patient interacting and that transpulmonary pressure. Again, it comes back to that same concept. And I think I vaguely remember people saying something about if we paralyze patients, maybe they'll have, uh, they're using less muscle and maybe there's demand, demand. and this oxygen demand mismatch potentially. Uh, How much do you think that's I think it's part of the equation in terms of the oxygenation potentially, right? So if you utilize less oxygen, you're going to come back with a higher mixed venous saturation. You can potentially come out of the lungs with a higher arterial saturation. I think it potentially helps with the oxygenation part of it. And we, like I said, we know that when we use neuromuscular blockade, patients often get better oxygenation. I don't know if it explains why someone's mortality would be different because most patients don't die from refractory hypoxemia. They die from multiple multiple organ dysfunction. Um, and I think if we believe more and more it's that whole inflammatory cascade that's leading to lots of organs failing. That's the harm in ARDS. So at the core of it, I think if we're going to say there's a mortality benefit, we have to say we're minimizing ventilator-induced lung injury somehow. And so I think that's a bigger component of it. However, Certainly oxygen consumption, oxygen demand goes down when you neuromuscularly block somebody. So it's going to help with oxygenation. And then the authors of the the trial also postulated that there might be some anti-inflammatory effects of cisatricurium itself, that specific neuromuscular blocking agent. Um, I'm not sure I'm as convinced of that, but you could postulate that again, if there's an anti-inflammatory effect of the drug, again, you could mitigate some of that systemic effect that's causing multiple organ dysfunction. Interesting. I, I haven't heard of that, but um, maybe plausible, I guess. Well, you, they talk about it in their discussion phase of the paper, and, and there are some data that might suggest that, and I think it warrants more study before we know that that's true. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, when we use neuromuscular blo- blockade, we're you know, helping the patient not fight against the vent, we're improving their synchrony, and and this interaction may help prevent, uh, you know, decrease the injury that we may be causing. So, possibly that can contribute to a benefit in mortality, and as well as better oxygenation. Now, what about proning? I will say at the institution that I trained at, we at one point proned a lot of patients and. Uh, as you know, towards uh, during my training, I didn't see a lot of patients get prone, uh, probably because we were doing a lot better uh, early on with not having patients progress to that point. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about this idea of proning and mm-hmm. why it may work mm-hmm. and what are the challenges involved because it seems like when you have a comatose patient or highly sedated patient, it doesn't seem very safe to flip them on their stomach. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think one of the things that was really interesting about the Perseva trial is that it ended up being pretty safe in the, in the hands of people who know what they're doing. So let's start about why you might do this. You're right that even when I started training, we reserved proning for when people had refractory hypoxemia as kind of that last ditch. What can we do to, to try to save this patient? And what the investigators who led Perseva said was, well, let's see if we do this earlier 
an ARDS and do it for longer, potentially we'll have more benefit. And their theory was that the dependent zones of the lungs, the ones that are um, in the back part of the patient's chest, are becoming much more atelectatic as patients lie on their backs. And we see that in CT scan studies of ARDS consistently. In addition to that, you have the weight of the mediastinum, the heart pressing on those areas so that they might worsen that atelectasis. And there's more lung in that, that posterior region than there is in the anterior region. So if you're going to get compressive atelectasis, you're going to get more of it um, when the patient's in that position. So they said, well, what if we flip the patient over and reverse the effect of gravity and had gravity help us open up those atelectatic units? Again, we're trying to recruit lung, right? It comes back to those same concepts. Can we open up lung? Can we make their their lung units more uniform? Can we minimize ventilator-induced lung injury by doing so? So what they did was they, they did this flip the patient over and put them prone, and in doing so, recruit lung so that we increase surface area for gas exchange, improve oxygenation, that's what we always knew could happen, but also create more uniform lung units and hopefully decrease ventilator-induced lung injury, improve the compliance of the lung, decrease that driving pressure, all the things we've been talking about. And what they found was when they did that, there was a significant mortality benefit. They did it for 16 to 17 hours. They did it in the study based on a protocol that said when a patient gets this much better in terms of their oxygenation, we'll stop doing it. I don't know if we know that's really the right time to stop it, but what they what they found was that this does seem to have that impact. And again, definitely improves oxygenation, but I think the mortality benefit is probably coming from decreasing ventilator-induced lung injury. It's the same story again. Um, Relevant to what you asked me, though, Mike, you said, what about it being safe? So the cool thing was, in the past, we used to use these very expensive beds called rotoprone beds to, to kind of put a patient on like what looks like a rotisserie and roll them over. Um, yeah, it was kind of crazy. So this is all done by manual proning. And the nurses and respiratory therapists in the unit in France that did the units in France that did this were really good at it. And they had a video that showed how they did it. There's been lots of other teaching um, AIDS now. And in all of our ICUs here at the University of Washington, the nurses and RTs do this in the same way. They wrap the patient up in sheets and, and pillows. They do a three-point coordinated turn and they flip the patient over. And the cool thing about Proceva was, you know, people worried, oh, we're going to pull out their endotracheal tubes. We're going to they're going to pull out their central lines. That didn't happen. That, that didn't happen. And I would say in my, our clinical experience, that doesn't happen because people do it safely and in a coordinated way in a kind of step-by-step -step slow process. What you do have to worry about is pressure ulcers because now the patient's potentially having their pressure on their face. Their face will become more swollen. You worry about pressure ulcers on the patient's face and you have to be strategic in how you cushion that, the patient or position their head. So there's not, it's not without some challenges, but the cool thing is that you can do it relatively safely without a fancy machine and really just good teamwork and a standardized process. Yeah, it, all these different interventions just I mean, initially they seem so not intuitive at all, but um, it seems like you know, in the hands of the right providers, they can be relatively uh, simple or maybe not too simple, but uh, <laughs> they're achievable and, yes. um, and can get us a lot of uh, benefit for our patients. Yeah, I, we do a ton more proning than we used to now. And I think that's mm -hmm. true in a lot of institutions. I think there's maybe a little bit more debate about the neuromuscular blockade, and there's probably more people that I know who are 
maybe a little bit more skeptical. And I think that plays into us also wanting to do early mobility in the ICU and wanting to minimize delirium. And when you neuromuscularly block patients, you give them a lot of sedation. So I think there's more debate about neuromuscular blockade, but I, I think there's more and more proning as long as you can get the team to do it safely. Interesting. Yeah, I think, it, again, you have to think about the, the whole picture. I didn't, didn't also occur to me immediately that there are a lot of downsides to having a lot of sedation needed to allow a patient safely to receive a neuromuscular blocker. Great. Yeah. Yeah, you want the patient fully sedated if they're neuromuscularly blocked, right? You don't want them to be awake and paralyzed. That's the, so we want to make sure they're fully sedated. So they're probably deeper sedated than we than we sedate our other ICU patients. Okay, let's see. We did both of these things for our patient, and we got a little bit of benefit out of it. But we recheck his arterial blood gas. His P to F ratio is now a little bit better. It's in the low one hundreds, but it's still not where we're like it to be. And uh, his general clinical status does not seem. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, there are uh, oftentimes a lot of other uh, comorbid conditions that are going on in this whole inflammatory syndrome. If the patient's hypoxemia just refuses to get better despite our best interventions, what are some other measures left for us? So the patient still is hypoxemic. So if somebody who has truly refractory hypoxemia, and I would say they have to have a PaO2 in the, you know, 50s, 40s. So I'm not necessarily going to pull this out for this patient, but there's a couple things that I would consider is number one, we use pulmonary vasodilators. Traditionally, it was inhaled nitric oxide. Now we often use inhaled epoprostenol. And the goal there is to deliver a pulmonary vasodilator to the areas of the lung that are getting gas. So they're being ventilated and hopefully cause vasodilation there to match ventilation and perfusion and improve your VQ mismatch and improve oxygenation. So we know that that does exactly that, that inhaled pulmonary vasodilators improve oxygenation. What we don't know is that it changes mortality. So I've been saying to you over and over again, just because your oxygenation gets better doesn't mean that you necessarily have an impact on mortality. And potentially that's the case with inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, but we try them in this setting pretty commonly. Um, and then I think the other big thing that is beyond the scope of what you and I are going to talk about today but warrants its own discussion is that we consider putting the patient on venovenous ECMO, so VV ECMO, as a way to basically support oxygenation in the patient who has refractory oxygenation. In our institution, we try all the things we've talked about first, and if we're still not getting there, then we talk about putting the patient on VV ECMO. Um, and I think the data for it are evolving. There's a randomized controlled trial in France that just closed and we look forward to seeing what the results of that are because our earlier trials are really imperfect in terms of seeing what the mortality benefit is of using VV. We know there's a benefit to transferring patients to centers that have VV and use VV, but we don't necessarily know that the actual use of VV ECMO is what makes a difference. So if I had refractory hypoxemia, I'd think about a pulmonary vasodilator, and I'd probably talk to the, the ECMO team about considering ECMO for this patient. Okay, excellent. Well, I think ECMO is probably, it's something that I uh, have never seen done for patients during my training, so it certainly sounds like it's reserved for the really the sickest of the sick patients, but it's nice to know that there are some other options that we can reach for, but uh, obviously, yeah, it's not something that a resident would be... Um, leading the charge of. <laughs> no, I think that's when you should at least talk to the rest of your team and probably involve the attending. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. All right. 
thank you so much for going over the management of ARDS. I think that was super helpful. Perhaps we can wrap up by just going over a little bit about what we talked about, the recap and the highlights and maybe some take-home points for the residents. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Um, it's been fun to talk about ARDS, one of my favorite things to chat about. So I think things we talked about. One is you got to figure out if your patient has ARDS or not. And I think knowing the Berlin criteria, PF ratio less than 300, use the different cutoffs to grade severity, bilateral opacities, acute within seven days with an etiology and not fully explained by left heart failure, know that the patient has ARDS. And then if the patient has ARDS, first and foremost, think about lung protective ventilation with low tidal volumes. Six mLs per kilo is a good place to start with some latitude there. Um, keep the plateau pressure less than 30. And then we think about how do we figure out where the PEEP is and using that PEEP potentially to find the best, lowest driving pressure. More to come on that in the future, I think. Finding the right PEEP is hard. Maybe using esophageal balloons is the way to do it. Maybe that we do trial and error. Um, at least think about finding that, that PEEP that is best for your patient. Is, is he or she recruitable or not? And if they are, how much PEEP do you need to really get them to that right spot for recruitment? And then if the patient has moderate to severe ARDS, we're going to think about proning. We're going to think about neuromuscular blockade. And if they have refractory hypoxemia, we might consider inhaled pulmonary vasodilators and we might consider ECMO. So lots to talk about. We could talk about a lot more, Mike. It would be my pleasure mm -hmm. to do so, but that's probably enough for everybody for today. Yes, I, I would agree. Uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Critic, for coming and explaining and in a very uh, excellent and clear manner the management of ARDS. I thought I knew a little bit about ARDS, but I definitely learned more today after our conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to our first episode. I want to give special thanks to our expert today, Dr. Patricia Critic, and the folks at the NEJM who made this podcast possible. Karen Buckley, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, my co-fellows, Dr. Karen Soko Gutierrez, and Dr. Lisa Colley, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hemenmick. Don't forget to visit our rotation prep guide in critical care for more on ARDS at resident360.nejm.org. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. Please tell us what you think by emailing us at resident360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at nejmres360. Stay tuned for our next episode on community-acquired pneumonia. <laughs>